Father, if there is any work that's to be done this morning, we know full well it will be because you render it and make it so. That brings great comfort to us because you know where every single heart and soul is in this room this morning, those who are in Christ and those who are not, those who are encouraged and thriving in their Christian walk and those, Lord, who are struggling and discouraged. You know all things. And by your miraculous power, through your spirit and through your wonderful treasure of a book that we call your word, Lord, you have a way to speaking into every single individual and doing exactly the work that you will to accomplish. So, Lord, we just want to gladly and joyfully place ourselves under the authority of the scriptures today. Root out anything that would stand in the way of that task. And Lord, would you bring glory to yourself and to your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Northlake, we frequently and rightfully marvel at what Christ's resurrection means for our present. In part because if Christ has not been raised, there's a few things that ensues. What that means is that our faith this morning is, for starters, in vain. Those songs that we sung were empty and hollow. We've attached our lives to a fraud and we have no grounds of assurance and any inkling of peace that you have with God evaporates in midair. As Paul rightly said, if Christ is not alive, we of all people are to be most pitied. Now, I could go on and on about this implication of Christ's resurrection, but the question I would like to ask each of you this morning is, do you sufficiently marvel over what Christ's resurrection means for your future? With that question in mind, I would like to invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 5 this morning. Revelation chapter 5, there within this chapter, is a vision of the risen Christ. A vision that really sets the stage for not only your future, but the future that awaits the entire world as well. Now, if you're visiting with us, with our pastor wrapping up his well-deserved time of sabbatical, we've already parked in this particular piece of real estate last week in chapter 4, and it's already proven to be a wonderfully sweet place to reside. You see, by the time one reaches chapter 4, you've already noticed a few things as you read through the book of Revelation. You have this frail and 90-year-old apostle John who's been exiled to the island of Patmos for his faithfulness to Jesus Christ. It's been some 60 years since Christ was raised from the dead, and you have here this small but growing church in Asia Minor that's feeling the weight and pressure to compromise and cowered under the weight of persecution. So what does God do? God gives his people a word through his servant, the Apostle John. This word is the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you look back in chapter 1, you get a sense of what all this wonderful book entails where Jesus himself there at John 1.19 tells John, Revelation 1.19 tells John to write the following. John, I want you to write the things which you have seen which was his vision and view of the glorified Son of Man that he saw and had the privilege of seeing in verses 9 through 18. 
John, I also want you to write the things which are, which was this glorified son of man, his assessment of his bride, which is chapters 2 and 3, the seven letters to the churches. And it wasn't a very favorable assessment, and we'll leave it at that. But he also tells John, John, I want you to write the things that will take place after these things, the things that are yet to come in the future. Which brings you and I to the next and final section of the entire book of Revelation. Chapters 6 through 22 represent all the things that will take place after these things. It's everything that will transpire upon the opening of a seven-sealed scroll that we will note in just a moment. Whereas each seal on this scroll is broken one after another. There will be this further manifestation of God's unstoppable wrath that will pour out upon the earth. Wave after wave of unrelenting wrath. Thankfully, before one gets to this actual terrifying breaking of seals in chapter 6, God, by his grace, gives us two visions into heaven. And he does so in order to prepare us for what one is about to see when you move forward in the book of Revelation. Two visions that remind all of us from whom and from where these events will come. In chapter 4, which we looked at extensively last Sunday, the room gets quiet, the curtains drop, the God rearranges the furniture, and the scene changes for a moment. And the church there is given a picture of the Father, who is described as one who sits upon the throne of heaven, but it's not just any throne. This is the throne from which emanates out flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. And from that throne, God is rightfully worshipped as the creator and sovereign over all. Well, awestruck by the indescribable majesty of God on his throne, All of heaven begin to sing a series of hymns of praise to God. Look at chapter 4, verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Later in verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You round the corner into chapter 5 and you are soaring in the clouds at that moment when all of a sudden someone just as glorious enters the same scene and it's the risen Lord Jesus Christ himself. This morning it's to him that we turn our attention to. If you're taking notes today, the main idea of Revelation 5, 1 through 14 is the following. The lamb becomes the worthy king And a worthy king means hope for those the lambs redeemed. If you read along with me, verse 1, as John writes, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. 
Then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each one holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them were myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea, and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. And there we conclude chapter 5 in the same way we did chapter 4. Friends, this scene really breaks into three clean sections. For starters, we get to observe the absolute sheer agony of no one worthy. For John, it is agonizing to be sure. But praise God, this is quickly and followed by an abrupt interruption with this appearance of the worthy one, which is followed close on the heels by the appropriate, I say, adoration of the worthy one. Let's look at this agony of no one worthy. Verse 1. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now you can picture this, can't you? God the Father, the one who is seen sitting on the throne of heaven in chapter 4, sits up and stirs a little bit on his throne. And John notices something in his right hand, which, mind you, is the hand of strength and rule. And in that right hand is a book, Biblion, which in that time was a scroll. This is not like our modern-day notion of a book. This was a long piece of papyri or animal skin that would be rolled up from both ends and into the middle. And what exactly was the scroll? Well, from the way it's described, this is a title deed. In John's day, a a contract or title would be written on the inside of a scroll and it would be sealed up with seven seals and then the contents of that scroll would be summarized on the outside. 
Meaning in this instance, what John is observing in God's hand is none other than the title deed of the entire earth. And it's a scroll that he will subsequently give to Christ his son. But unlike other such deeds, this deed does not record the details of what Christ will inherit, but rather the details of how Christ will regain his rightful inheritance. And if chapters 6 through 8 are any indication Christ is going to do this in miraculous, vengeful fashion by means of various forms of divine judgments that are about to be poured out on the earth. And then and only then concluded with the coming of the promised Messiah and his kingdom. Friends, in a nutshell, this scroll contains the rest of the book of Revelation. Now, friends, before we move on, I do want to make this abundantly clear. Yes, this is a scroll of doom and judgment. It's what Ezekiel described as a scroll of lamentation, mourning, and woes. Ezekiel 2.10. But it's also good news. This is also a scroll of redemption. You see, this is the very moment that all Christians in the entirety of creation have been longing for are the events of this scroll. This is what Romans 8 describes as anxious longing. The whole of creation groans for that day when it will be set free and all things will be made right. Redemption will be realized. That cancer that you battle, that heart defect that you battle, that's groaning. That chronic pain or terminal illness that you suffer under, that's is groaning that relationship whether it be with a spouse or a child that ought not what it ought not is not what it ought to be all of this is groaning loss and grief of death it's all an anxious longing for God to come back and set all things free i say all this to communicate that what is in this scroll is sort of a big deal What is inside this scroll marks the culmination of that day when Christ will redeem the world. He will make all things right. What's inside this scroll represents the groaning that will be no more. The wait at this moment in chapter 6 will be over. And when you're mindful of this, you begin to get a sense of the agony that John expresses in the following verses, no? As you read verse 2, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, this anonymous one from heaven inquires out from the top of his lungs so that everyone can hear who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals. In other words, who has the innate worthiness of character to even begin approaching the throne, let alone grabbing hold of it from the Father's hand? Who has the divine right that would qualify him to begin breaking these seven seals? Who has the power to defeat Satan and wipe away sin and clear away its effects and reverse the curse of creation? Who is worthy? And to John's dismay, as the last echo of the angel's voice rang out, only silenced followed. Verse 3. No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. 
insert dramatic pause. And then in this silence, we see John's response. That silence is broken by something. As John says, then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Church, this is the only time that we will see tears in heaven. Now, on a pastoral level, before one moves on, we have to ask and ponder, John, why do you respond in this way? Why the uncontrollable sobbing? Why is he weeping over the inaccessibility of the contents of this scroll? What could be so important about this scroll? Well, we know from the rest of Revelation what happens once this scroll is opened, but by implication, we also know know what would not happen if this scroll is not opened. If the scroll is not opened, chapter 5, verse 9 does not happen. Jesus is not worshipped as the world's redeemer. Chapter 6, verse 10, the martyrs of the faith would not be avenged. Chapter 8, verse 4, all of the prayers of the saints, none of them will be answered. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done would be flat and hollow. Chapter 9, verse 15, God's appointed plan would not come to pass. Chapter 19 through 20, Jesus would not come back. And chapters 21 through 22, God would not reign in glory in the new heaven and the new earth. Friends, bottom line is this. If this scroll isn't opened, the Bible's promises don't come true. And if the Bible's promises don't come true, hope is lost. This is why John is weeping. He's weeping because he's so emotionally involved in what is happening. He's weeping because he's concerned at this moment. No one in heaven or on the earth was found to be worthy at verse 3. And at that juncture, he's beginning to think that things might not work out as he had hoped. Let me ask you this morning, do you ever feel that way? Things might not turn out as you had hoped. Perhaps you feel the way John did when you think about the state of Christianity. It seems like there's so much false teaching and hypocrisy and failure. Maybe you feel that way that John did when you think about our culture today. Christians, isn't it encouraging to know that John, the apostle, the Bible author, also felt that way, wept bitterly. There's a lot to be discouraged about in this life. But thankfully, just as John was discouraged by what he saw, sometimes we are discouraged by what we see. And again, thankfully, the resolution to the pain that John feels, what's the resolution to that pain? He needed to see something, and not just something, he needed to see someone. This is the same thing that we need today. And it comes in verse five, five through, verses 5 through 7, where we see now the appearance of the worthy one. Was no one going to unroll the scroll and redeem God's creation? And as the tears begin to well up in John's eyes at the thought, one of the 24 elders around the throne 
The same ones that we saw in chapter 4, one of the ones that represent the glorified, raptured church. One of them says to him quite pointedly, stop weeping. John, I know from your vantage point, everything seems to be going badly. And while you're weeping, it's sincere, it's premature, and it's premature because God, your God, is about to take control. He's about to take action. And right at that moment enters a, a, a new person in the scene, verse five, 5, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. In comes the only one worthy to open the scroll, and the elder describes him in two ways. He is the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, and he is the root of David. Essentially, Christ's worthiness to approach that throne, flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, and take that from the right hand of the Father is intricately tied to his messianic office, the lion and the root of David. If the lion that is from the tribe of Judah sounds familiar, it's because it is. That comes from Jacob's blessing of the tribe of Judah in Genesis chapter 49, which reads the following in verse 8. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. And listen to this last line. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. Friends, that is an image of intense wrath. Meaning out of this lion-like tribe of Judah was scheduled to come someone who was a strong and deadly ruler. And Christ here in this moment in Revelation chapter 5 is seen as that ruler. Fast forward for a moment to Revelation chapter 19. If you'll turn there with me this morning to the right of chapter 5, Revelation 19. And as you make your way there, just give you context. We're going to see this lion. Is that me? That's me. The preceding two chapters leading up to chapter 19 depict the fall of Babylon. It, you see on the... the the scene, the false Christ, the Antichrist, and the ten kings who were ruled with him. And it's all leading to their demise, as well as the harlot that you see there in chapter 18 as well. Now, for the sake of time, I want you to note chapter 18, verse 20 for a moment. Because chapter 18 ends with the following. It invites one to rejoice over her. Rejoice over the demise of Babylon. Because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. And chapter 19 is the response to that invitation. Which includes a series of songs. And then we find ourselves in verse 11 of chapter 19. And notice this additional vision 
of Christ. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on, the, on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for, for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse. And against his army. This is the lion from the tribe of Judah. But look at verse 20. I love that elaborate description of this king, this warrior. And notice the, the brevity of verses 20 through 21. This beast and their armies. Notice how verse 20 begins And the beast was seized. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is not a new description of this one who is to come. Israel should have been mindful of this one. In part, this is who they were anticipating. Isaiah 31, 4. The Lord said to me, as the lion or the young lion growls over his prey, against which a band of shepherds is called out, will not be terrified at their voice, voice, nor disturbed at their noise, so will the Lord of hosts come down to wage war on Mount Zion and on its hill. Later, Isaiah 42, 13. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. Friends, this is what the psalmist was conveying, right? O kings and judges of the earth, take heed, show reverence, do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. This is the lion that is coming. But John, the the elder, also notes that the elder described him as the root of David, which derives from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 10. Which reads, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Jesse was King David's father, if you will remember. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Verse 10, then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples 
and his resting place will be glorious. Church, meaning Jesus is the rightful king from David's line. Truth be told, this is much of the reason why Jesus was crucified by his own people in the first place. The Jews of Jesus' day expected their Messiah to be a powerful king who would come as a ruler, who would come and free them from their earthly oppressors. But instead of using his miraculous powers against earthly oppressors, Roman oppressors, he instead used those miraculous powers to defeat the chief oppressors, being sin and death. And he did so through the most unconventional of ways, by laying down his life for sinners. This is why Jesus was rejected and killed. It was because the Jews had misjudged their Messiah. And yet here you have this elder now says, Oh, he is a lion. And he will tear up and destroy his enemies to be sure, but he will do so on his timetable. And it is this lion-like judgment of his enemies that is about to take place from Revelation 6 onward. Bottom line, Jesus is the only one worthy to take the scroll simply because of who he is. He's the rightful king from David's line, and he's the lion from the tribe of Judah who comes with power to destroy his enemies. But not to be forgotten in all of this is that Christ is also worthy because of what he has done. As the elder says, he has overcome. Here is why we marvel at how the reality of Easter towers over our future. The fact that there's an empty tomb is because at the cross, Jesus in that instance defeated sin, defeated death, and defeated Satan. And now believers, we are overcomers through his overcoming. You understand how this works? 1 John chapter 5, he, who is it that overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And John's vision into heaven further underscores this overcoming in verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Anyone notice the irony of how Christ is pictured here? The elder described him as a lion. And now the picture is one who is the opposite of a lion, a lamb. We know this theologically, friends. The Lord Jesus could not become the lion of judgment or the king of glory until he first became what? The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And how did he do that? Well, he did that by doing what lambs do. You see, from the moment that sin entered the world, breaking man's relationship with God in that instance of Genesis chapter 3 from that moment that God constituted a people for himself lambs were deemed as sacrificial creatures their blood was shed and their life was given to serve as an atonement or covering for the sin of sinners 
And here you have this lamb standing as if slain. He is the lamb to end all sacrifices. Which is why Revelation pictures him in this way more than any other way. Over 31 times he's referred to as the lamb of God. This lamb is not your run-of-the-mill lamb. This lamb still bears the mark of his sacrifice, nails in his hands, piercings in his feet, and yet he is standing. He's standing, meaning he's alive. He's on his feet. This is the quintessential embodiment of the beauty and power of what we celebrate at Easter, isn't it? That yes, a tomb is empty, but we have a lamb who is standing. He's alive. He's on his feet. Our Savior is alive. It's the exact same thing that he told John, right? In chapter 1, verse 17, you remember John falls on his face as a dead man as he sees this glorified vision of the Son of Man. And Jesus grabs him by the shoulder and says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and I am the, and I love these words, the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever and I have the keys of death in Hades. Do not be afraid. I am alive. And through his powerful resurrection, Jesus over. Christians, this is the great paradox in all of the world. The almighty king overcame all of his enemies as his enemies seemingly overcame him. On Good Friday, Satan surely thought in that moment that he had won the battle. He had deceived God's people into murdering their very own deliverer. Jesus was dead, nailed to a cross. And yet out of the ashes of the crucifixion rose in that instance with that tomb and stone that was rolled away and tomb that was empty. Salvation arose for the world. This wasn't grandiose enough. John says he has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. In the Old Testament, horns were a symbol of military might or power. And eyes symbolized knowledge and understanding, meaning to have seven of each of these means that Christ has all power and Christ has all understanding. So like the Father, he too is omnipotent and he is omniscient. And so, of course, he's the only one uniquely qualified to take the scroll. Well, as soon as he takes the scroll, there's this tremendous response from those who are observing Which leads us to the third and final section of this chapter and of this vision. The adoration of the worthy one. Verse verse 8. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. Which are the prayers of the saints. You stopped right there for a moment. As soon as Jesus takes the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, they... They do what? They do what they did in chapter 4. They fall down and worship. Which should be our response as well, should it not? 
And they worship because they know that Christ is taking the scroll. And in taking the scroll, this is going to initiate a series of events that will eventually lead to his kingdom upon the earth. A series of events where all wrongs are going to be set right. All crimes will be avenged and, avenged and all injustices are going to be accounted for. And so they fall down. Christ takes the scroll from the hand of the Father and the Father doesn't resist him. The four living creatures don't object and the elders don't stand in his way. The latter two groups just simply worship and adore. Why? It's because Christ the King has taken control of history in this moment. And the worthy one has arrived to take back what is rightfully his. The groaning of Romans 8 will soon be over. Notice what the four living creatures and the 24 elders are all holding. A harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Harps in the Old Testament were not only instruments of joy and gladness, and there was a lot to be joyous about here, but harps also represent and were instruments of prophecy. You see, harps represent not only all of the worship that God deserves, but also all of the promises that God has made to his people that one day he will come and he will redeem his creation. On top of this, you have the incense in the bowls, which represent the sweet odor of prayers rising up to God from believers. Where do these prayers come from? What are their contents? Well, in light of not just the whole of this book, but the whole of the Bible, these golden bowls are the same wide mouth bowls that we see in the tabernacle or the temple in the Old Testament. And what did those bowls represent? They represented the priestly work of intercession for the people. In other places of Scripture, it also associates with the burning of incense, with the prayers of the saints. So here's what's happening here in this moment. The incense in each of these bowls represents the prayers of believers throughout all of history. Every one of the prayers that believers have ever prayed that the whole of God's prophesied and promised redemption of the earth would come to pass. You know these prayers and you've prayed these prayers yourself. Anytime you read in the Bible, how long, O Lord, you see it in the Psalms, and you will see it later in Revelation chapter 10. The seals are about to be broken, and you have the righteous who cry out in verse 10 of chapter 6. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long, O Lord? So these harps and these bowls in the hands of the elders and the four living creatures indicate not only all, of the, all that the prophets ever prophesied and all of the God's children ever prayed for, it's symbolizing that all of this is about to be fulfilled with this lamb who stands as if slain. When we consider the response then of those around the throne, at this juncture we're not surprised, you read in verse 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. 
For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. They sing a new song about Christ's worthiness to take the scroll and break its seals. This is a celebration of the redemption of the saints. It's a song of praise to Christ for what he's accomplished at the cross. That cross where he paid the price for redemption for sins through his own substitutionary sacrificial death. And there in that instance he purchased some from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Friends, the gospel levels all notions of racial superiority. Why? It's because the gospel declares that all people everywhere are in need of the same exact Savior. Some from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And notice that the redeemed are not only those over whom God reigns, but amazingly enough that they themselves will also reign with Christ. When verse 10 says they will reign upon the earth, it's looking forward to that day in chapter 20. To the rule of the saints in Christ's a thousand year kingdom upon the earth. A kingdom and reign that you can note later in chapter 20. Then in verse 11, the scene becomes even more breathtaking. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the numbers of them were myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. An innumerable amount, too many to possibly count for John. And he simply says, they say, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Everyone in heaven is proclaiming the worth of the Lamb. And they are saying that he is worthy to receive anything that could be given to him in his honor. Riches, power. Wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. He deserves everything. Of course, heaven was not to be outdone. Suddenly in that moment, all of creation joins together with the angels in singing God's praises. Verse 13. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and on the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the climax of chapter 4 and 5. Both the Father as well as the Son are worshiped by every created being that has the ability to recognize God. So that the chapter ends with the soaring doxology of praise. And with the elders once again bowing down before this very throne. And from here on out, something will begin to happen. Christ will begin to break seal after seal after seal. Wave after wave of judgment will unfold. Now if you be in Christ this morning... And if you've overcome by placing your faith in the overcomer. If you've turned from your rebellion against the creator and rejected any fallen human notion that you could 
ever possibly merit any favor or right standing with God on your own. And if you've placed your complete trust in Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, well then for you believers, the opening of this scroll is a joyous occasion for you. This is one that you look forward to. So that we can now spend our earthly days in that vein singing the very same song as those in heaven sang. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Can I ask you this morning, does your life in the present sing that very song of the future? Let me put it an additional way, more of an encouragement. Believers, I would encourage you to rehearse today what what you will sing tomorrow. This is going to be our song for all of eternity. Now think about your life today. And the people that you interact with, is your life testifying to them? Screaming to them? Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Your neighbors, your co-workers, your family and friends, when they think about Wade Grubbs, in a sense do they say, there is a man whose life sings, worthy is the lamb. Or does my life sing, worthy is Wade? My riches my glory, my honor. Rehearse today what you will sing tomorrow. There's yet another group in this room this morning. If you are not in Christ this morning, I assure you, you do not want to hear the sound of those seven seals breaking. You do not want to hear the sound of seals breaking without first placing your hope in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. To delay that moment of placing your trust in Christ would be to your peril and would be to your judgment. By the time you reach Revelation 6, it is too late. And those who delayed and thought to themselves, I will live for myself in the present and wait until tomorrow, they will look in that moment. Look at chapter 6 for a moment. Verse 16, they will say to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. To live for self is to cry out tomorrow in vain. To cling to a false gospel today is to cry out in vain tomorrow. You see the Bible is very clear regarding where we stand before God. 
All peoples everywhere have sinned and fallen short of his great glory. So that Romans goes on to tell us, because of that failing, we have all deserved, we all have earned something. We've all merited death in our sin. All of us deserve to die. All of us have merited the complete and lasting separation from God. All of us in that moment will have deserved the wrath that's yet to be poured out on the earth. But the good news of the gospel is also this. And if you be not in Christ today, please listen to me. Christ this lamb is alive. He died the death that you deserve, was buried in a tomb, and three days later, this Jesus the Lamb was raised from the dead. He's paid the price for every single one of your sins, and he's paid it in full. And for the timing being, this one who sits on the throne of heaven is being incredibly patient and kind with you. And in that patience, he holds out to you the free gift of eternal life. And salvation, forgiveness of sins through the work of his son. How do you receive this gift? The Bible says that if you will but confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, God says you will be saved. He offers that to everyone here today, not yet in Christ. As we sang earlier, our only hope is to cling to Jesus. My only hope is Jesus, all the glory evermore to him. Who is worthy to take the scroll? Let's sing of that now this morning. If you'll stand to your feet and bow your head and close your eyes, the music team will come. Father, we... We want to thank you for this vision in heaven. You have been gracious. Not only did you give John, your servant, this view into heaven, but Lord, you, by your grace, you preserved the record of this vision. You preserved it throughout the span of time so that we could sit here this morning in 2021 and get to peer into your very throne room. Father, when we look into that throne room, we are also convicted and a bit overwhelmed by how often we live for such petty, lesser things. Our jobs and vocation, our advancement, our fame, our riches. Lord, the list goes on and on. So many instances where our lives do not exactly sing, worthy is the Lamb. Lord, we thank you that there is forgiveness where we fail to sing that song as we ought. We pray that you would energize now our song with all the sincerity in the world, for you are worthy. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.